Appreciate your ministry of music to us this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew, the 22nd chapter. As we continue our study in the book of Matthew. Now, Brother Vanderhoof mentioned in Sunday school, one of the present-day atheists, I guess you could say, Bill Nye, the science guy, and we've recently seen his atheism demonstrated in a debate with Ken Ham, but there was a, uh, another uh, atheist we want to talk about in just a, a moment here as we begin and look at our message this morning entitled, Spiritual Delusion. He was only 15 years old when he avowed atheism. Anthony Flew was a British philosopher who made his uh, self famous as a champion of atheism for 50 years. And even though he was the son of a minister, Flew insisted that a belief in God or the afterlife was a mistake. He sustained his own belief by proclaiming universities and forums on both sides of the Atlantic the lack of scientific evidence of God. But then at the age of 81, his philosophical arguments sprung a leak. Biological investigation of DNA, according to Anthony Flew, has shown by the most unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. So, he came to more or less believe in God. Though he was quick to state that this God is not only an intelligent person that has some kind of purpose, but in a de- uh, he was uh, in a deistic fashion, no, had no real involvement in creation. He said, I'm thinking of a God very different from the God of the Christian." and far away from the God of Islam, because both are depicted as omnipotent or oriental despots, cosmic Saddam Husseins. Well, what Anthony Flew could not get around was the inordinate difficulty, as he put it, even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of the first reproducing organism. In other words, Though a strong adherent to Darwin evolution, he doubted the Darwinian explanation of the ultimate origin of life. And at minimum, there was an intelligent design for the universe. And so the Big Bang was out. Well, as you can imagine, his admissions threw fellow atheists and skeptics into a tailspin. One from Columbia University posted an atheistic website that flew only accepted a minimal God. And he continues rejecting an afterlife, so he doesn't think it's really that big of a deal. But you know what? It is a big deal. It's a big deal when creatures deny the Creator. Or perhaps even worse, acknowledge Him but misrepresent him. And that's exactly what we find here in our text in Matthew's Gospel. 
in a second series, uh, a second of a series of three interrogations of Christ by his skeptics, we find a group of Sadducees attempting to ridicule the idea of resurrection and afterlife. It's not that they denied the existence of God. They didn't. But what the Sadducees did was to misrepresent the Lord God so that he would fit into their philosophical framework. And his only in his only quiz time by the Sadducees, Jesus levels their reasoning. Now the Sadducees are not alone. Plenty, like Anthony Flew, are willing to make some vague acknowledgement of God or a God of sorts. And you may have met some of them this week. Or sometime or other in your lifetime where you say, Oh yeah, I believe in God, but not the God of the Bible. All this Christianity stuff is just a myth. It's just a bunch of religion. We meet these skeptics in our own families. We meet them at school. We meet them at the workplace. The fact is the skeptics stumble over the ample evidence of God and eternity. And yet, he stumbles willingly following the impulses of a mind hostile to God. Skepticism about the living God never threatens even one truth about Him. God is who He says He is. He does what He says He will do. And our place is to hear, to believe, and to obey. So how did Jesus deal with skepticism? Notice first of all with me the danger of self-delusion. The danger of self-delusion. It's a very basic foundation, but skepticism is self-delusional. Think about it for a moment. A skeptic cannot acknowledge the order of the universe without also acknowledging the Creator. The Big Bang and the scientific naturalism just doesn't offer any logical explanations for the profound balance and symmetry and order found everywhere in the universe. You cannot find, or uh, the skeptic cannot stand amazed before the unraveling picture of DNA in every one of the six billion people on earth without also acknowledging the divine mind that makes up or that designed it. God's handiwork is stamped on every Everything in the world, everything on this earth, even the microscopic cells that make up our bodies, and even in mosquitoes. Now how does a skeptic stand back and gaze upon the snow-covered Rockies or the Alps against the brilliant blue sky with tiny wildflowers etched in an array of colors at his feet? He may not be able to explain all of it, But to deny the Creator's handiwork defies explanation. And yet self-delusion is a way of life for multitudes of people. We're bombarded with warnings about dangerous effects of reckless driving, of smoking, illegal drug use, and sexual promiscuity. But in spite of the warnings, 
Many either don't care or think that it applies to others, but not themselves. And so they live in delusion. And as long as a person doesn't want to accept or acknowledge a matter, even though it's true, then he's free to follow whatever course he chooses. Now listen this morning, self-delusion is a moral issue. It is not a matter of philosophical arguments or careful research or unconvincing proofs of truth. Those are really smokescreens to hide the reality of moral choices. And this is precisely at the root of the Sadducees' skepticism of Christ, which I think we'll see as we look at this text. Notice, first of all, the core beliefs gone astray. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 Of chapter 22. Says there the same day came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection, and asked him. Now, the Sadducees were the elitist of the first century Israel. They stood at the opposite end of the religious spectrum with the Pharisees. And while the Pharisees would have been considered the conservatives of their day, professing belief in the Scriptures, the liberal Sadducees denied most of the Scriptures' authority, accepting only the Pentateuch as authoritative. And even here, they cleverly interpreted things as they wanted them to go. Uh, They were really anti-supernatural as well. They denied the existence of angels and demons, and so... As we find Matthew explaining, they say there is no resurrection. And since there is no life after death, then one must make the most of the life's opportunities to get ahead. In that spirit, the Sadducees loyally followed the Roman authorities because the Romans put them at the helm of Israel's political structure. They also made up the highly the high priestly family, and they profited by the marketing bazaar at the temple. Uh, They had power, they had money, they had prestige. So why did they need God? If there is no resurrection, then why not live and let live? For tomorrow we die. Just as the disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians had done, the Sadducees, would attempt to catch Jesus in a comment or make him look foolish in front of the multitudes. And so they posed what they thought would be a conundrum, a challenge, a perplexing question that others would not be able to answer. And since they denied the resurrection from the dead, their question focused on what they showed as the absurdity of resurrection. Notice verse 24. Verse 24 says, saying, Master, Moses said, If a man die, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now what they were referring to was the teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6, on the Leverite marriage. And that term, Leverite, comes from the Latin word for brother-in-law. It did not originate with Moses, but it was a continuation of a somewhat common practice in ancient culture. 
If a man died childless, his widow would be given to his brother, who would maintain his brother's name in the community by naming the firstborn in the place of his brother. And technically, that child would be his brother's child in the eyes of the tribal structure. And even though biologically his own child, there were a, was a pre-Mosaic example of this with Judah when uh, the Lord put his evil firstborn, Ur, to death, and then gave his daughter-in-law to his next son, Onan, in order to raise up seed to thy brother, as it says in Genesis 38. We looked at that when we were studying the book of Genesis. But when Onan failed in his duty, the Lord took him as well. And so then the Sadducees put forth their challenge. Verse uh, uh, 24 through 28. Now there were with us seven brethren. The first, when he had married a wife, deceased and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, quite likely, they really did not know of any kind of situation like this. They were just coming up with what uh, they thought would be a good challenge to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they pretended that this was a real situation. During that time, the Leverite marriage had long since faded from common practice. It really wasn't even being done at that time anymore. So their intentions were to cast Christ in a bad light by making the resurrection from the dead appear to be foolishness. Well, Jesus hammered the basic problem. The term heir originally meant someone that had geographically gone astray for a particular road or path. And then it came to take more ethical connotation. They had gone astray from the truth. And that's what Christ meant by ye do err. They had no interest in knowing if the resurrection from the dead was true or not. They had decided that it was not, so whatever arguments and evidence from the Scriptures given to them, they resolutely held their ground, and their core beliefs had gone astray. Is that really that hard to do? Certainly not. Isn't that the great mistake or error that is made by many people today who try to justify their sinful actions? They do not know what the Bible says, and they could care less. Some people today, we know, engage in immoral relationships. And they will shuffle the scriptures enough to convince themselves, well, it's okay. Well, we're in love, and love does no wrong. That's what the Bible says. And therefore, what we're doing is okay. Or because we love each other, we're really married in God's sight, and so whatever accusations men make against us really don't matter. Most common of all is the shuffling that denies one's need for the grace of God. The idea that says, well, I'm okay just the way I am. I'm okay just the way I am. I'm just as good as anyone down there at the church. 
As a matter of fact, there are a lot of hypocrites down there, and at least I'm not hypocritical. How many times have you heard that? How can they say that I need to be saved when I'm perfectly satisfied with my life? Why do I need to change when I'm so happy? Well, that happiness is really just a surface happiness because down deep, they're miserable. And to hold any position that runs contrary to God's Word, one needs only to ignore certain portions of Scriptures. And there are a lot of people today that ignore the Bible and what it says, and they pick and choose the things that they want, it, want to, to look at. And that's what the Sadducees did by accepting only the first five books of the Bible. And they selectively interpreted those books. And that's what people like some of the modern day theologians have done by trying to paint clear statements from Scripture as, well, we really can't understand that. It's non-understandable. Therefore, if we cannot understand it, well, we don't have to believe it. Core beliefs go astray to suit the desires of the flesh. And that's why this is ultimately a moral issue. Notice, secondly, satisfaction with mistaken notions. Satisfaction with mistaken notions. Even though the Sadducees claimed to believe the books of Moses, they were really satisfied to overlook passages in in the Pentateuch that would overthrow their core beliefs. For instance... When Genesis 2 declares that God made Adam and then breathed into him the breath of life, is it so incomprehensible that the same God can breathe resurrection life into the dead? Enoch, he walked with God, we're told in Genesis chapter 5. And God took him rather than Enoch passing through the normal process of death, Where did God take him if there was no resurrection, if there's no afterlife? Where did Enoch go? Even Abraham believed that if he had to sacrifice Isaac, that God would raise him up from the dead. Granted, the fullest development of the resurrection is found in the New Testament, but it's clearly found from Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament. And that's why the Pharisees were in agreement with Jesus on this subject. And a few years later with Paul, when he stood before the Sanhedrin and declared that he was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And so here we find that Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. But to our knowledge, none of the Sadducees yielded to the message of Christ. None admitted that in light of God's word, maybe they were wrong. And they needed to submit to the truth of God's word that was being spoken by Christ. And so defiant and stubborn and resistant, they chose to be satisfied with their misinterpretations of Scripture. Was it an intellectual problem? No, they were well-educated, brilliant men. Was it a failure to study the Scriptures? No, they were students of the Scriptures. It was a moral problem. 
Well, there are no Sadducees in our congregation today, are there? I, at least I didn't see any walk in today. At least not in the technical sense of the word. And yet there may be some that are skeptical of the supernatural. Ever known somebody say, I don't, I don't believe all that, those miracles. I don't believe all that stuff. That's just, that's just pretend. That's just made up stuff. And so they're defiant and they're persistent in their mistaken notions. And certainly everyone here would agree that there are issues and statements and truths in God's Word that are so magnificent, so otherworld that we cannot fully explain them. But that never means they're not true. I cannot explain my computer. I, can't com- I cannot explain how I can save thousands of pages of documents on a little tiny chip. I don't understand that, quite frankly. But you know what? That doesn't mean it's not true. Just because I don't understand it. I can understand enough about it to utilize it without grasping every detail and how it operates. To be sure, it still confounds me from time to time. And still, I still don't know what's going on. But let's face it, the only real reason any one of us this morning refused to believe the gospel of Christ is not because it's untrue. Instead, it's only because we want to be the Lord of our lives, and so it's a moral decision. It's a choice that we make. And when that's the case, we've fallen prey to self-delusion. And we must spend our time trying to stomp down the clear truths of the gospel by focusing on the hypocrites in the church or straw men questions. At least, to be honest, your resistance to Christ is because of your love for sin and your hatred for the ways of God. So there's a danger of self-delusion. Secondly, the unmasking of self-delusion. What about this error message on my computer? Ever get an error message before? Oh, all too often. Even on a it seems like a brand new computer. Why would I get an error message? Well, that's what Jesus was giving the Sadducees. Ye do err not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. What did the Scriptures teach about the resurrection of the dead? Well, they quoted the passage from Deuteronomy for their challenge to Jesus, and so now Jesus responds by quoting from Exodus. In Exodus chapter uh, 31, excuse me, uh, they had failed to understand the Scriptures. So in Exodus 31 and 32, it says, But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is the first of two particular ways in which they had deluded themselves. And these were not just obscure first century notions, but they were the essence of why so many, even today, are self-deluded. 
It's because of the failing to understand the Scriptures. And Jesus uses the Scriptures to answer their challenge that they had supposedly taken from the Scriptures. We notice the emphasis that Jesus makes about the Scripture. He says, Have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God? Our Lord affirms the plenary inspiration of the Scripture. In other words, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. He was not speaking to the wind, but He was speaking here, it says, to you. He says, have ye not read? What God has spoken, He has spoken to humanity. But as our Lord showed, let's not just sweep it so broadly. God has spoken to you through His Word. It's God's revelation of Himself. Yes, we can know a lot about God's power and creativity by just looking at creation. We can know much about God as a moral being by just contemplating the conscience that He's put within each one of us. But we really only learn about God's ways and God's will, and the details of His nature, and His attributes, and His person, by the revelation of the Holy Scripture. And that's why the preaching of God's Word is so vital to us each and every day. That's why we emphasize the preaching and teaching of God's Word here at Spooner Baptist. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of, of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. God has spoken... And he's spoken to you. He's spoken to me. And since that is the case, it behooves us to hear what God has to say as he meant it to be understood. And that's where the Sadducees balked. They would have least agreed with the, at least agreed with the Pentateuch, that it was God's word, but they only wanted to hear it in a way which would agree with their own presuppositions. And so they approached God's word with their minds made up, easily sliding over the passages that undermined their belief system. Reminds me of so many so-called religions today. People picking and choosing the chapters and the verses that they want that line up with their way of thinking. And so Jesus questioned their reading of the scripture. They had read Exodus 3, 6, as God revealed Himself to Moses. They had read it, but they put it aside because it didn't fit their belief system. And selective interpretation satisfied their desires, but Jesus would not let them persist. God did not tell uh, Moses, I was the God of Abraham, but He died. And I was the God of Isaac, but He died. I was the God of Jacob, but unfortunately he died as well. That's not what Jesus said. He said, I am the God of Abraham. 
I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And Jesus drew the conclusion in God's word, God is not the God of the dead, but He's the God of the living. And as the writer of Hebrews explained about Abraham, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then for the other patriarchs, he said, and truly they have been mindful of that country from whence they came not. They might have had an opportunity to have returned, but they, now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. They look for something eternal, something heavenly according to the promises of God. They did not understand all the dimensions of the resurrection of the dead but we find in the, that we find in the New Testament, but they believed it, nonetheless because they believed what the Lord had spoken to them. There's no quicker path to self-delusion than failing to understand the Scriptures. And more often than not, it seems to be a matter of not wanting to understand what God has spoken in His Word. That is the root of unbelief. For to understand God is to feel something of the weight of accountability to believe and to obey. Especially when we hear what He has said about our sin and His judgment. Yet, unless we believe these things, we will not believe that God sent His Son to bear the judgment due for our sin. Without such faith in a crucified and risen Christ, we will still be resurrected, but not to life, but rather to eternal death. But I do read my Bible, you might say. Yet I do not see my need for repentance and faith in Christ, nor the necessity of knowing Him as Lord. Jesus addressed a group very, with a very similar story. He said, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they that they are they which testify of me so what was their problem even though they searched the scriptures diligently jesus adds well and ye will not come to me that you might have life you will not come In other words, they could find Jesus all over the Scriptures, but that's not what they wanted to find, so they rejected Him. And perhaps someone among us this morning has tried to squeeze God's revelation into his own or her own design. And that's what many first century Israelites did, and they never found eternal life. And we need to learn from their hard lesson. Hear and believe the Gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Not only was there a failing to understand God's word, but there was a failing to recognize God's power. Go back to the challenge that was put before Jesus here. After the seven brothers died, the wife finally died. And now the question that would put Jesus on his heels, they thought, in verse 28. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be if of the seven, for they all had her. You see, in thinking, in their thinking, they presented, you know, this is a big problem for heaven. Jesus would have to accept the practice of one wife having two or more husbands, something that was never practiced in Israel. It was not sanctioned by Scripture. 
But Jesus explained their problem was a transferring of earthly framework into the heavenly realm. He said, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. You don't understand the power of God. And then he explained in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now their view of God was so small they could not conceive of anything better than this world, nor a God able to bring it about by His mighty power. And the reason they denied the existence of heaven really had nothing to do with heaven. It was due to their view of God. If you do not believe God as He has revealed Himself, then you will not surely not believe what He promised or what He commanded. And so Jesus did not say here that resurrected believers become angels, okay? Some have mistakenly tried to make that sound that way. We don't become angels. But we may be like angels in that there's no longer the same necessities that mark human existence. You know, we know very little of the life to come in heaven. And perhaps our clearest ideas of it are drawn from considering what it will not be rather than what it will be. It's a state in which we will no longer have to eat. <laughs> we'll, be hung- we'll not be hungry. But you know what? We won't be thirsty. Now we thought, well, that's, that's uh, something we do every day. But you know what? There also no be no sickness. Amen. No pain. Amen. There'll be no disease. There'll be no wasting old age and death will have no place. Marriages and births and constant succession of inhabitants will no longer be needed and those who were are once admitted into heaven, will dwell there forevermore. And like the angels, we will serve God perfectly, unhesitatedly, and unwearily. Like them, we shall also be in God's presence. And like them, we will always delight in in doing His will. We will give all the glory to the Lamb of God. Now, Those are some deep things to think about, but they're true. How do I know that? Because God's Word tells me. He has spoken to us. He has spoken. And when God speaks, we need to listen. None of us can escape the presence of God. We can try by denying Scripture. We can ignore our need for Christ. We can reinterpret the plain truths to suit our fancy, but we cannot escape the living God, even in hell. One man put it very strikingly. He said, hell is eternity in the presence of God. Yes, that's what he said. Hell is eternity in the presence of God. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator. There's a difference, you know. 
The very one the Sadducees were trying to smugly address is the only mediator for us in God's presence. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your mediator before God? If not, you need to come to Him today. Are you mistaken about many things because you just don't know and understand what the Bible says? Have you tried to make it say what you want it to say or what God says? Folks, don't just read the Bible. Ask the Holy Spirit for guidance to understand it and His power to obey it. Don't be deluded. Don't get yourself in the same spot that these Sadducees were. Trust Christ. Search the Scriptures. Ask God for understanding. And then obey what He tells you. Let's pray. Father in heaven,